How's that? All right. In between college and seminary, I was involved in a college ministry at uh, one of the local universities in, in my hometown. And one day, I was having a conversation with a guy I'd met on campus, and we were talking about, about Christ, and the opportunity came for me to share Christ with him. And I'll never forget how he responded, because I, it, it was so honest. But I think it reflects the way many people in our world think, but they may not say it. He, he told me that he had grown up in the church, and he had heard this message time and time again, but he also shared with me that he was a freshman in college. And he knew that making that kind of decision was going to keep him from all the fun to be had as a freshman. And he told me specifically, he was talking about alcohol, drugs, and sex. And he, he was basically telling me that he did not think a life lived for Christ could compete with that. It's pretty shocking, isn't it, when you hear it? But wouldn't you agree that many people in our world reason in this way? Many people reason in this way, even though they wouldn't say it. They truly believe that the enjoyment to be had through living worldly is better than anything Christianity has to offer. And this is nothing new, is it? Check out this quote by classical Greek philosopher Socrates. Happiness is unrepentant pleasure. Wow. It's pretty obvious what he's getting at, isn't it? Voltaire, who was a quick-witted writer, supporter of religious tolerance, and an opponent of the Christian faith, said pleasure is the object, duty, and the goal of all rational creatures. Poet and playwright Oscar Wilde said this, pleasure is the only thing to live for. And many of y'all probably know this next guy here, American self-help author and success coach Tony Robbins. My definition of success is to live your life in a way that causes you to feel a ton of pleasure and very little pain. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're finishing up chapter 1 of Philippians. We're going to look specifically this morning at verses 27 through 30. And last week, you remember we talked about in verse 25 that Paul comes to terms with the fact that he's going to continue on in earthly ministry. So what we're going to find today in this passage is that Paul shifts gears a little bit from talking about the uncertainty about whether or not he's going to live or die to a focus on ministry, specifically instructing the Philippians. And in today's passage, what we're going to find is Paul is going to call for the Christians at Philippi to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How to find joy, not through living worldly, but through living worthy. So let's get into it. First, if we want to experience joy through living worthy, we have to, number one, be good citizens of God's kingdom. Be good citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 27, first part of verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy 
of the gospel of Christ. That phrase, let your manner of life, is very unique in, in the Greek. And basically, what Paul is saying here is behave the way citizens are supposed to behave. That's what Paul's saying here when he talks about let your manner of life. Behave the way citizens are supposed to behave. And listen, this would have meant a lot to the, the Christians at Philippi because Philippians, the, the, the Philippian Christians, they were, Philippi was a Roman colony, okay? And they were proud of it. They were kind of like Texans. How many of y'all are proud to be from Texas? Raise your hand. It's good. It's good. I love that. I love the way Texas, take, they take pride in their state. You know, when you cross across the border, you begin to see the Texas flag flying and, and the Texas star a lot of times is displayed on the outside of homes and of restaurants. And people take that association seriously. This is the way the Philippians were. They, they were a Roman colony. And they enjoyed many of the rights that the Roman citizens enjoyed. And they took that association seriously. And in return, they gave their full allegiance to Rome. They adopted Roman dress, they named their children Roman names, and they even spoke Latin, which is uh, the official language of Rome, and they were subservient to the Roman emperor. And Paul knew this about them, which is why he says, in the same way you take pride in your Roman citizenship and live worthy of that association, so also are you to conduct yourself as good citizens of God's kingdom and live worthy of that association. That's what Paul's getting at there. Let me ask you something. Have any of you ever been poorly represented? Anybody? How did it make you feel? Make you feel angry? I was watching a, uh, an A&E special, Mysteries of the Bible. Anybody ever watch those? And uh, I was watching one on the resurrection, and the Christian expert that they have is John Dominic Crossan of the Jesus Seminar. Now, for those of y'all that don't know who he is, he's as liberal as they come. He doesn't even believe the Bible to be inspired and doesn't believe the resurrection took place as, as the scriptures record. And he even says this in the documentary. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I was kind of angry about it. You know, I was like, I can't imagine a worse representative for the Christian faith than him. I mean, even though they, when, when they showed his picture up there and his title came up, Christian, he was, uh, you know, he was anything but a, a good representation for the Christian faith. I mean, he wasn't even worthy of that association. Now, I know that's a pretty extreme example, but let me ask you a question this morning. If you call yourself a Christian, are you living worthy of that association. If people saw you on a day-to-day basis, would they be proud of your representation of the Christian faith? Would they be like, that's who I want representing me, that guy right there, that woman right there? How are you representing Christ? How are you representing the Christian faith? Because like it or not, if you're a believer, you are a representative of God. Like it or not, you are what your unsaved family members, friends, and co-workers, what, what they know about Christ, they know from you. And when they see little or no difference 
in your life, you know what happens? They see little reason to believe in the gospel you claim to believe in. A while back, I was looking for some comfortable shoes, and I think I was at Champs or Academy Sports or something like that, and I saw these Nike shoes, and man, they look comfortable, and they look sharp. And I asked one of the, the sales reps about the shoes, and he told me, he said, that pair of shoes right there are the best we own in the store. They're the most comfortable. They're, they're just the best shoes we own. And then he points down, and he's wearing them. And you could tell they're, they're a little bit worn because he had been wearing them every day, day after day. And he said, I wear these every day, and I'm standing up for most of the day on my feet, and they're very comfortable. Now, what do you think I said after I heard him say that? I'll take them. I'll take them. Now, what if he would have said, those are the most comfortable, those are the best pair of shoes we own in the store. And I asked, well, do you own a pair? And he said, no, I don't own a pair. What do you think I'd think? Well, if they're so good, why don't you own a pair? Why aren't you wearing them? And I'm sure many think along these lines when it comes to the Christian faith. If the gospel is so great, then why don't you live like it is? So ask yourself this morning, is the way I'm living my life, is it weakening the credibility of the gospel and its impact, or is it strengthening it? Live as outstanding citizens of God's kingdom. Number two, to experience joy through living worthy, we have to stand firm with integrity. Read on in in verse 27 with me. Paul says, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So even though Paul knows that he's going to continue on with the Philippians in earthly ministry, he doesn't know when he's going to see them again. He's unsure of that. But what he does here is he encourages them to live with integrity. He says, no matter what happens, live worthy. And whether I come to see you or am absent, Stand firm. And that's what integrity is, is it? Look at this quote from D.L. Moody on integrity. He said, integrity is what you do in the dark when no one is looking. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He said, whether I'm with you or not, stand firm. Hold strong to your beliefs and convictions. Live godly lives without compromise at all times. Several years ago, I was at church. I was having a conversation with uh, one of the guys in the church, and I was asking him about his week at work. And for some reason, he just begins to just tell me all the people he had let have it that week. You know, I'd let this person have it. I laid into that person. I mean, kind of braggingly. And I could tell when he looked up at me, he could see I kind of had a, you know, concerned look on my face. You know what he said to me? He said, well, thankfully, you never see that side of me. That's the way I am at work. And I was thinking, man, there shouldn't be another side of you. What you are here is what you should be at work. Have any of y'all ever noticed uh, sometimes when commercial buildings go up, they they put the picture out front of the finished product of what the building's supposed to look like, but behind it, you just have barely a foundation laid. I think we often do that. We come to church, don't we? We put on that, that church persona and we, we, you know, we project what is supposed to be the case. 
even though the opposite is true Monday through Saturday. Who are you when you're not here? How do you act when you're not surrounded by other believers? At one of the churches where I used to serve, they had a sign set up when you, when you were leaving each Sunday, and it said, you are now entering your mission field. I love that. It was just a sign to remind believers, when you leave here, live out your faith and be the church in the world. Believers, you are the church. The church is not this building. It's not this location. It's not just a time set aside, an hour and a half, one Sunday a week. You are the church. Let me challenge you today, when you leave here, to remember you are the church. In your home, be the church. Around your kids, be the church. Around your unsaved family members and friends, be the church. When you're out and dealing with employees, when you're, when you're buying food in a restaurant, when you're being waited on, be the church. When you're at work, be the church. Lifeway recently polled a number of unchurched members, uh, unchurched people. These are people who had been out of the church for at least six months or more, and they found that a full 72% of people interviewed said they think the church is full of hypocrites. Now, I know some people are like, ah, oh, we've heard this before. Just throw that number aside. People are just looking for an excuse not to be in church, and they're just wanting to blame the church for everything, all their problems. And I, I know that's somewhat that's the case. To an extent, that's the case. But I think there's something more here to that uh, to that study than what we, what, we, what we see. Here's what I think. I think that the world has taken notice that the church is not being the church. And I think that's correct in a lot of ways, don't you? And if the world has taken notice that the church is not being the church, how much more so should we as a church take notice of it? If it's an issue for the world, how much more so should it be an issue for us? Paul continually dealt with this problem, didn't he? He was always having issues with churches failing to be the church and failing to be faithful in his absence. And he's, that's one of the reasons he's warning the, the Philippians here, because he knows he's not with them. Remember in the book of Galatians? It's one of the main points of in, in the book of Galatians. Paul's like, I haven't been gone two seconds. And you guys are already leaving and, and following after false beliefs and abandoning the truth of the Christian message. May this not be true of us. When you leave today, I want to I challenge you to remember that you are entering your mission field. So value integrity. Stand firm and be the church in the world. Third, you want to experience joy through living worthy? Work together to advance the gospel. Last part of verse 27. Paul says, striving side by side 
for the faith of the gospel. That word striving together is where we get our English word athletics. And Paul is basically saying here that like athletes on a team, he is challenging the Christians at Philippi to work together. Be of one mind, be focused on one goal, and that's to advance the faith, advance the gospel. And Paul is clear, for this to happen, they have to be willing to put aside personal differences so that they can be faithful to do what God has called them to do. How sad is it that so much time and effort has been lost because of internal issues in the church. I've read horror stories of churches fighting over chairs versus pews, hymns versus contemporary music, brown carpet versus red carpet, which, by the way, I wouldn't go with either of those options. I've seen red. I've seen orange, too. Um, but how sad is it? And, I, and get this. I think this is so important. I think one thing that Satan wants to happen more than anything else is this. He wants the church to find opposition within itself so that the church never gets around to fighting the true opposition in our world. Paul is clear. We as a church, we need to be putting aside personal differences to work together for this reason, to push back the darkness that's in our world by advancing the gospel. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to be doing as a church. That's crystal clear in Scripture. And you know what? It should fire you up that God wants to use you for this reason. Think about this. The very, we are the very people responsible for the world being in the shape that it is in. And God chooses to use the people responsible for creation being in the state that it's in as His very instruments of redemption. Isn't that incredible? He does that with Adam and Eve, doesn't he? When Adam and Eve first sinned against God and ruined God's perfect creation, what does God say? Through you comes Christ. He uses Adam and Eve as very instruments of redemption, and he does that for us. We are are to be used for his redemptive purposes, and that should just fire us up. If that doesn't fire you up and motivate you to want to work together for his greater purposes, I don't know what will. Recently, the, uh, the Miami Heat <clears throat> NBA basketball team signed two superstars to, uh, to their franchise along with the superstar they already have. So they now have three of the best players in the NBA. Dwayne Wade, I know some of y'all probably don't care. LeBron James, Chris Bosh. But anyways, the question is not whether or not they have the talent to win a championship. Clearly, they do, and everybody recognizes that. But, but what they're talking about and what, what the discussion that's taking place is, can these guys put aside their differences and their big egos to work together to win a championship? That's the question. They basically, they have to want to win a championship more than, than they want to be the best in the league or the best on the team. Listen, for us as a church to make an impact in our world, we, self-included, have to be willing to die a bit to our pride, 
to our personal preferences and to our petty differences for the sake of the gospel. You've heard it said there's no I in team, right? Guess what? There's no I in church either, is there? And the question is not whether or not we can be used as a church to make an impact here in this community. We clearly can. Christ would not have commissioned us to do it if we couldn't. But here's the question. Can we as a church resist the temptation that will inevitably come to put our personal desires before God's purposes? So God, help us. God, help us. Put aside our differences so that we can fulfill our greater purpose of advancing the gospel. Fourth, you want to experience joy through living worthy? Expect opposition from enemies of the cross. Verse 28, Paul says, And not frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of you, but of, but of your salvation. When Paul says those who oppose you, we don't really know who he has in mind here. I mean, is he talking about those within the church, those outside the church? Is he talking about uh, those that oppose the church with false doctrine or those that oppose the church with the standard of living not consistent with the Christian faith? We don't really know. Paul doesn't say. But what we do know is this. The Philippians had opposition. And Paul tells them to not be frightened nor be intimidated by it. He says, in no way be alarmed by your opponents. And one of the reasons why is because the future end for enemies of the cross is not good, according to this text. Their end is destruction. So it's not a good thing. When we think about opposition, we really don't like to think about it, do we? Nobody likes opposition. Many people, when they hear that, when it comes to the Christian faith, they're like, ah, count me out. Opposition is not enjoyable, but listen, it comes. It comes when churches strive together to advance the gospel. When we work together and when we start doing God's kingdom work, we're going to have opposition. In fact, Paul says that's the sign that you're, uh, uh, you belong to God and you're doing what He's called you to do. Paul says there, it's a clear sign of your salvation. That shows you belong to God and that you're working together for His purposes when you have opposition. In fact, I would say, if you don't have opposition, there may be something wrong. You might need to question, am I making a contribution to God's kingdom? Because listen, the enemy is not going to allow kingdom work to take place without a fight. We're going to have opposition. Now, something we need to avoid is going to seek it out. Some people do that. Man, I'm just going to. I'm going to stir it up. I'm a Christian. I'm just going to stir it up. We're not to look for opposition. But we're also not to run from it when it comes. But Paul says we're to stand strong. We're to prepare for it. We're to expect it and stand strong. And listen, nothing pleases God more than when His people show that they value Him above all else and courageously remain faithful amid opposition.
So be prepared when opposition comes and stand strong for God. Lastly, accept suffering for the cause of Christ. Trust me, I wouldn't have ended on opposition and suffering, but uh, that's the way Paul ends it. So we've got to do it the way he does it, right? Accept suffering for the cause of Christ. Paul says here, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And then in verse 30 he says, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now one, when Paul talks about suffering, he makes you kind of suffer through trying to understand it and read it. Listen to verse 30 again. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What in the world is going on? I had fun with that verse. But what Paul is talking about here is he is putting himself forth as an example. He's saying, I'm engaged in the same conflict, and you saw it. They saw Paul when he was in Philippi. He was in prison. Remember the whole story with the Philippian jailer and everything? Paul, they saw Paul go through it, and they had also continued to remain in contact with Paul and heard about how he'd suffered along the way, and now they heard about the fact that he's in prison at Rome. So Paul puts himself forward as an example. And listen, when Paul talks about suffering, here's what we need to do. We need to tune in. We need to listen to what Paul has to say. Because if anyone knew about suffering and God's purposes in the midst of suffering for his people, Paul knew it. And he says here in this passage, while suffering is unpleasant, it's in fact a sign of favor from God. Wow. He tells the Philippians here that in the same way belief has been granted to you, so also has suffering been granted to you. And that word he uses there for granted is the same Greek word for grace. Wow. Now, does that mean suffering is a good thing? No. Suffering in and of itself is never a good thing. It's not the way God intended things to be. When God first created the world, He created the world without suffering. So suffering in and of itself is not a good thing. But what we learn from Scripture is this. That although suffering is difficult, and it's not a good thing, God can use suffering for His purposes. And He does. He uses suffering for His purposes. And what we find in the Scriptures is that there is joy that comes through accepting suffering. Two reasons why. Number one, through suffering we learn what faith truly is. When the world as we know it has been pulled out from under us, we truly come to understand what it means when we hear that God's grace is sufficient, that God's grace is enough that it sustains us. We learn what faith truly is through suffering. But you know what else happens? When we go through suffering and we endure it, our faith is also strengthened, isn't it? So suffering teaches us about and strengthens our faith. When I was in seminary, we had to write these papers and we were graded on on two points. Number one, for the content of the paper. And number two, they had to be in Turabian format. Anybody familiar with Turabian? Ugh. I didn't before going in. I probably wouldn't know had I not gone to seminary. 
But Turabian is this certain format, and you have to follow it. You know, line it up in the margins, do all this, and there's a book about that thick, if you ever want to be bored to death and read it, on all the different rules. And my first couple of papers, man, I worked hard. I was trying to figure out how to do everything and, and get everything in line. And I turned in my papers, and, and I receive it back, and it looked like my professor had just bled all over it. And it just, ah, oh, it just killed me, you know? Because I was like, I'd spent all that time, and I had just blood red all over my papers. And I had to carry that thing around with me. And people were like, man, he, you know, he tore your paper up. Uh, but you know what? You know what those, from getting those papers back, you know what I did with those? I used them. Those red, those comments in red served to teach me the next time I wrote a paper what to do differently. So those, those, that, that difficult, you know, difficulty of all that time spent and just to be ripped to shreds, I used that to learn Turabian and also made me a better writer. And my papers improved. And in a similar way, suffering, though difficult, it teaches us faith and what faith truly is, and it also proves to strengthen our faith. So accept suffering. Like I said last week, Although trials are never easy, are they? There is, there is benefit. There is spiritual benefit in the midst of suffering. There is. So be faithful. Continue to be faithful. And we see that in the cross, don't we? Christ truly suffered. The cross was horrific, but you better believe there are spiritual benefits to the cross. Let me say this. Let's close it out real quick. Believe it or not, lasting joy is found in a relationship with God and a life lived for Him. Here's the tragic thing. What's truly unfortunate is there are many out there trying to find joy with all their, with all their might without God. Remember I shared a quote with you earlier from Voltaire who said, pleasure is the object, duty, and goal of all rational creatures. You know what he was quoted later on as saying? I wish I had never been born. Wow. Jay Gould, any of y'all familiar with Jay Gould? American millionaire from the 1800s. He, was, uh, um, he became one of the ninth wealthiest men in all of American history. I mean, he, he was just extremely wealthy. He had everything you could have when it came to earthly desires and earthly pleasures. You know what he said on his deathbed? I suppose I'm the most miserable man on the earth. Why? Because each of us have a God-shaped, God-sized void in our life that can only be filled by God Himself. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, If I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And we were, right? Our bookstores, if you go into any bookstore, you know what the largest section of books in a bookstore is? Self-help books. Self-help. Because people know deep down inside there is something amiss in my life and I've got to get it. 
The reason why many people think there's got to be more to life than what's right in front of me is because there is. We were made, like C.S. Lewis said, for another world we were made for eternity. And the truth of the matter is, there is no lasting joy in this life without God. That's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1. Isn't that his main point? Life under the sun or life without God is vanity. It's useless, it's futile, and it's, there's no joy in it. But fortunately for us, God did not intend us to live life without Him, did He? Although Solomon diagnosed the problem, you know what God does? He provides the solution by sending His Son. And only through Christ is there life with God and lasting joy. If you've never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, there's no better time and right now to make that decision. Let me challenge you. It's, it's, it's time for you to start living your life the way God intended you to live it. And that's with Him and for Him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for the lasting joy that comes from a life lived with You and for you. Help us, God, to be good representatives for you in your church. Give us boldness to live out our faith in our world. Father, forgive us for how we've let pride, preference, and petty differences distract us from the true opposition in our world. Help us, God, to put aside our differences so we can fulfill our greater purpose of advancing your gospel. God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. I pray today would be the day that they turn from their sins and trust in you alone for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.